0: To get started, visit plushcare.com dot slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com dot slash weight loss.
2: This is not a diving podcast, but it's cool,
3: Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. I am back in my studio in Palma de Mallorca. It's Easter Monday. I've been in Berlin for the weekend. Had a couple of shows, both of which were notable for totally different ways. So um, on Friday, I played a... Ukraine fundraiser at Prince Charles in uh, Prinzenstrasse. And um, it was an interesting party. It raised quite a lot of money for the charities involved, which was that's the main thing, the most important thing um, of that event. But it was, it was illuminating for me in a musical sense. I, I, my, my sets have, have changed quite a lot in the last couple of years. Certainly since I stepped back from touring at the end of 2018, my musical outlook has been all over the place, really. Um, So I had a year off, almost a year off from playing shows before the pandemic hit. So when I was coming back to playing shows last year, end of last year, it had been pretty much three years since I'd played with any sort of regularity. And whilst I'm not playing out hugely regularly now, I am thinking about my DJ set regularly in a way that I haven't done probably since 2018. And uh, so I'm playing, like, I don't know, I'm playing quite similar music to what I played in 2010, actually, now. So I'm, you know, up in the sort of late 130s, playing quite a lot of bassy stuff, but putting it in the context of techno. So there's a lot of 4-4, but there's, you know, it's very, very choppy, um, in and out of halftime you know, lots of bass, lots of kind of, um, well, not, not big drops, but there's some drops, you know. It's definitely not linear. But I haven't played out a huge amount. So, you know, when you change style, you have to kind of put it to the test a little bit in front of an audience and see how different audiences react to stuff. So, so on Friday... Um, Claire Morgan was playing before me, and you know she's she's a good DJ and everything. Um, but she was playing very different music to to what I was going to play. So she was playing very kind of trancey breaks, big snare rolls, big drops, like you know very kind of technicolor inflected music. And I came on uh, and played as I've just described, but playing basically the same sort of tempo and not no not a million miles removed to what she was playing. But but just but I guess a bit more understated, I suppose, would be the difference. And I emptied that venue. Like I, I really did. I haven't I haven't done that for I don't think I've ever done that. Like it really went from being quite busy um to an hour into my set and it it was dead out. And it just it really got me thinking as to like the way music has changed, particularly in Berlin. And we talk about this later on in this sort of intermission episode of Not a Diving Podcast, but um, Berlin has changed like it's unrecognizable musically to how it was when I first moved over there when the sort of tail end of the minimal thing was still happening. I mean, music gets played now that you know people would be would have been outraged to hear in 2007. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. So that was that was extremely interesting. And um, apologies to Eric Cloutier, who had to go on after me after I just destroyed this party. And I, I mean, destroyed in, in the proper sense of the word. So, yeah, that was bad. And also shouts to Dan Cole, who was running the party. I, I apologized until on the night for for, for wrecking it. Um, again, in, in in the proper sense of the word. <laughs> so there was that, and then on Saturday night, I played an NFT gallery party. So that's not something you would have uh, <laughs> you would have expected, even five years ago, maybe even three years ago. So it was at Craftwork, um, just round the corner from uh, Trezor, where they have the Artonal. Uh, festival shows, and it was the Eternal guys that asked me to play there. It was Bright Moments Gallery putting on the event, and and it was it was a, it was great. Actually, it's an amazing venue, absolutely mind blowing venue, and you know it was it was a fun party. And luckily, not everyone didn't leave that time, uh, <laughs> so, so that was good. But just it was just mind blowing to me, just in the fact that what it was, the nature of the event. You know, it's like Web three, which we talked about last week on the show with with Tim Exile. It's, it's taking over, man. It's it's the future. And, you know, like, as we mentioned, there's a there's this kind of weird culture war going on around it, some of which is completely legitimate. Some, I mean, some of the criticism anyway is completely legitimate. But much of it is very um, irrational and based upon the conservatism of many people in, in music. So... People just need to accept that it's happening and, and get on board. And, you know, if they, if they want to make changes to it, then then make those changes, you know, get involved and, and do something positive instead of just sitting at the sidelines and complaining because the world's going to overtake you very soon. Anyway, so today on the show, I just wanted to first of all say that one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, one of my first podcasts I've really got into was and is the Hardcore History podcast with Dan Carlin. He's just extremely effective at um, like distilling down masses and masses of information uh, on a given topic into something which is sort of engaging and um, informative from a sort of lay person's perspective. I'm a history graduate. I did history university many years ago. So it's kind of up my street, generally, just on a sort of um, subject matter. But what the reason why I'm saying this is because I was listening to an episode, I knew the, the latest episode, in fact, um, of the show yesterday, and he mentioned that he does it all unscripted, which was, on the face of it, like, pretty surprising. I mean, a uh, really um, <laughs> notable feature of Hardcore History is that the episodes are extremely long, So like anything up to six hours of just him talking. There's never any guests on there. It's just him sort of analyzing stuff that he's read, basically. So he'll read a bunch of history books, maybe some primary sources as well, and then just discuss them in the framework of whatever topic he's talking about um, for, for hours on end, like literally. So the sort of revelation that he just does this essentially off the cuff, was, was quite surprising to me, I have to say. And also quite affirming because the way I've been doing this show is entirely unscripted too. And obviously it's different when you have guests and there's an opportunity to sort of like play off each other. But, um, you know, I, I've mentioned before on the show that I'd never, I've never done anything like this before at all. I've never interviewed people. I've never really... Um, I'll try to articulate my thoughts in a way which is sort of fit for public consumption. I mean, I've written stuff down, I mean, notably on Twitter, but Twitter's is not, um, it's, it's not a place for considered discussion really. And I've got, uh, I've got myself into all sorts of trouble over the years by being flippant in, in that medium and saying stuff that I don't really mean uh, for effect. And Twitter kind of lends itself to that sort of thing. But yeah, it's 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 not really a it's not a place for it's not a place for articulating an argument that you've considered in full, really. And obviously, long form pieces are obviously different to that. And and I've done a bit of that before, but not really. But just in terms of talking, this is really my first attempt at developing some some thoughts and, and putting them down. And obviously, when you talk about other people to them, they they develop almost by definition as part of that process. So this is a long way of saying that we don't have a guest this week. Basically, uh, it's, it's the Easter weekend. So um, I did have a couple of things uh, lined up to record, but there were some various scheduling problems. And like, instead of trying to shoehorn in something um, that may not have been as good as it could have been, I decided just to t- uh, use this as an opportunity to step back, to detach, as it were, and think a little bit about how the show has gone so far. We've done 14 episodes in 14 weeks. and When the pace is so relentless, it can be a little bit difficult to uh, keep a kind of handle on what one is trying to achieve, really, with all this stuff. Because I didn't really have a lot of concrete goals when I set out to do this project, I just figured uh, it was a uh, it was something that I wanted to do because I love the format. I love the long form podcasting format, and I've listened to so many. Um, and that's really been my research for for doing some of like this. As I said, I haven't got any experience, but I've researched it just by listening to a ton of this format of stuff and i figured i just figured i'd be quite good at it <laughs> and i am um, and therefore wanted to give it a go but i didn't really have a lot of thought i didn't really have a lot of concrete thought anyway about what i actually wanted to get out of it intellectually and i don't just mean personally i mean like what what i wanted this show to kind of bring to the table of the wider discussion of music and I said in the in the trailer that there wasn't a huge amount of similar stuff out there, and that is, I do I do think that's true. But I recently came across um, Jamie Liddell's podcast, which is they actually had a couple of um, common guests. In fact, with who we've had on the show so far, so Tiga is on one, and also Tim Exile is on episode with Jamie Liddell, and it's a great show. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's called Hanging Out with Audio Files. And it is really good and sort of similar to what we're doing here but it but it is it is different in the sense that it's much more squarely focused on music production so um everyone on there is a is a producer or an engineer or a, like directly involved with the making of records in some sense and just just listening to those shows just got me thinking like how does what we are doing on this podcast, like different from that, and I, I guess what I'm interested in mostly, well, there's, there's a few, there's a few areas in fact, but like just to pick out a couple, more than the making of records, I think I'm interested in the psychology of musicians. So why do people make records, and what motivates them to do so? I think the episode in which. I got into that most deeply was probably the one with Recondite which was episode two and I'll play a clip of that later but that's just something that I find really fascinating and particularly in electronic music where most of it is instrumental and you're expressing yourself through what is extremely an extremely functional art form in many ways. You're making music really for people to dance to and you try and fit your I guess, artistic expression into that. And of course, all art forms do have some kind of of constraints uh, in the medium. But dance music is is particularly constrained in that. But it is possible to express um, a high degree of... um, yeah, you know, me- messaging and emotion and and that was that was a question that I tried to frame to Manuel Tough in that episode and did it extraordinarily badly actually. I didn't I didn't really think it through properly. But but just, just the ability to um to, to to message in a way through instrumental music is something that, that really interests me. And different people's um the way different people do that or attempt to do that is super interesting. And then the other area that sprung to mind was I guess like the, just the history of dance scenes generally. So I was talking to someone, a new a new acquaintance recently and recommended that they listen to the Mark Broadbent episode because they mentioned that they'd been involved in the Ibiza scene. And they went away and listened to it and came back to me and said that um, they sort of considered it to be a music history podcast which was not something I considered before but I guess in many ways it is because a lot of the stuff that we've talked about on various of the episodes has been focusing on people's formative experiences which are often uh, given the the age of guests we've had on here um, are often 20 years or more ago often more in fact we've been talking about 90s a lot and the 90s are a long time ago now like it's like talking about the um, the '60s in the '90s, um, which is crazy to me, actually having having you know had most of my formative experiences back then, makes me feel extremely old. But you know that's just where we are, really. But the the '90s were absolutely formative in all of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of contemporary dance music and contemporary electronic music. And obviously, they've been you know covered chapter and verse in in many books and you know all the rest of it. But I just think getting people's direct experience of that is so interesting because you know a, a primary source is by its very nature completely different to you know someone some author's interpretation of it. Going back to um to hardcore history, so so yeah, this is super interesting. I, I did an interview recently. Which I will link to in the show notes, where I where we talked about. Well, I was asked the question about um, like the chronicling of music and you know journalism in it, and and whether there were you know examples of books or you know just journalistic input which carried a lot of weight. And I, I the reason that I, one of the reasons that I started this podcast is because I I often get the impression that when when a journalist interviews a musician. There's not really a level playing field and it can be often adversarial, but just like, I don't know, I, I'm i loath to criticise music journalists at a general level because I think, I mean, of course, there are examples of really good ones and, you know, there um, there's great contribution been made. But at the same time, I think there is a reason why the dance press has, declined to the extent that it has. I mean, obviously the press has declined in terms of its readership more generally, but but particularly music press um, has declined massively. And I think it's not just because of the differing ways that people consume media. It's not just because of the advent of social media. A lot of it is because just the quality is not there. The insights are just not really there to the extent that they once were. Like, yeah, you know, I was reading a biography of the American music journalist in the seventies, Lester Bangs, and just what was brought in those days, the kind of golden age I guess of music journalism was just is just not there anymore it's just it's just not I' caveat that with you know the recognition that there are still good music journalists but anyway, I wanted to ask musicians questions that they don't get asked by journalists basically. Was a a big motivating factor. In fact, it was probably the biggest motivating factor at the start. As I mentioned, I didn't have a didn't have a lot of them. Didn't give out a huge amount of thought, but that was definitely one. So yeah, history of dance scenes. I one of the things that's um, become clear to me, and actually, it was also as a result of that interview, in which the book *The Clang of de Familiar* by Felix Fenn von Thurlen. I think I'm probably mispronouncing Thurlen, but yeah, that book is extremely illuminating and and actually, now that I think about it, does kind of um, inform what I'm trying to do here to a large extent. Basically, the book is it's about Berlin club scene uh, from the 80s through to the sort of mid to late 90s. But what's distinctive about it is that it's entirely told through quotations. So essentially what they did was interview a whole bunch of different people, maybe 100 people or something, I'm plucking that figure out of the air, but um, ballpark. And then the entire book is the story told through quotes. So it's 100% primary source material. Um, and because of that, it really gives a unique flavor of what the experiences were, um, direct experiences. Now, obviously, because it's curated, then, you know, that there is a story being told and there are choices that the authors are making, narrative choices, um, when they select which quotations to use. So it's not just a direct, you know, it's not just someone who is there telling a story, although I think the um, the authors were um, there or thereabouts. But it just, um, it gives a very, very different kind of picture than than what you normally get from a book just trying to analyse the developments of a music scene from afar. Like even if that author was, you know, participating to some extent, like participation is is so subjective in music and like your musical experiences are so subjective that you know you can go to a, a club and have a very different you know night to someone else like often you know it might just be down to what pills you've taken you know it can be completely different like it can be totally transcendental for one person and you know completely nothing for another and it's the same it's, it's the same with music as well, the, Those the music experiences as well as the kind of experiential stuff. So, yeah, if you haven't read that book, I'd highly recommend checking it out. I'll stick a, a link in the show notes again to that. But just one of the things that has kind of shown itself or emerged through the various conversations that I've been having is that it's extremely useful to get different takes on the same thing basically I mean it sounds obvious but you know having a bunch of different people who go out to clubs in Berlin you know the observations they have are often subtly different you know in a way that's just quite illuminating so we had you know Deadbeat talking about Club Divisionera, which was super interesting to me because it's a club that I've been to a few times but never really got my teeth into as a, as a punter as it were I've never played there either actually but it's so important for so many people, actually, in Berlin, that club. It's not that well-known outside of it. I mean, if, uh, for clubbing-type people, yeah, of course it is, but it's not nowhere near the same level as, as the Burkin, for example, in terms of its general visibility. But yeah, so that was, that was super interesting. And then having Appleblim on, talking about his experiences in Berlin as a clubber, you know, as someone who had come in as a DJ from the dubstep scene, you know who had had who had been in his techno before, but like you know it's very different actually going out in Berlin to pretty much anywhere else, and then also Mano LaTuff talking about his like the contrast of his experience uh coming from Dublin, where it's very much of a kind of u k esque heads down get as wasted as you can <laughs> before a certain time mentality, and just adjusting to that. Mentality of going out late and staying out late, and how that affected his his DJing, was super interesting, too. And then yeah, so I mean, there's been a few others as well. You know, like um the uh, the UK scene. One of the really really interesting things that came out of various discussions of the UK, like for example, with with Dee Bridge, and also with Mark Broadbent, was the the way the Criminal Justice Act of '94 is viewed. I mean, I. I've mentioned on the show that I started going out as a sort of 16, 15, 16-year-old 16 in, in 95. Um, and almost all the discussion around the future of the scene back then was kind of framed around this Criminal Justice Act event, like legislative event, which was basically a way for the Conservative government at the time to sort of clamp down on what had become a bit of a moral panic around outdoor unlicensed raves which had been rumbling on I guess since the late 80s um, but had really kind of like kicked off after sort of 91 and kind of the whole hardcore thing was huge and like you know just big raves in fields and people getting wasted um, (laughs) in a way that the establishment never really likes but it was very much seen as a as a bad thing as something that was an attempt to kill Acid House I guess, but then to hear both of those guys really paint it in a positive light, actually, in terms of what the effects of it were. I mean, presumably those were unintended consequences of uh, Tory legislation. But actually, apparently, you know, certainly going by what those two guys said, it really had a, a sort of galvanizing effect on music. So by putting events into smaller clubs with, you know, probably better sound systems, and certainly better sound, anyway. Um, outdoor sounds is obviously very hit and miss. And, I mean, presumably, I didn't go to many unlicensed outdoor raves, but uh, I'm guessing the sound of those things wasn't the best for the most part. No doubt there are exceptions. But when you come into a smaller venue, the opportunity to um, yeah, really get deeper into the music, I think, is um, is presented by that different context so stuff like you know the uh, Metalheads night at Blue Note for example which was so influential on so many people I mean Deebridge mentioned it but also so did Appleblim and I certainly went there and I know all of the early dubstep well most of the dubstep guys who are the the ones who are old enough anyway so Mala uh, for example I know is a big Metalheads attendee like that was just such an important night. And in the context of that Criminal Justice Act, it's just like, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's no direct cause and effect there. I'm, I'm sure it would have happened anyway, but, but it's just so interesting to get that sort of alternative take down the road, you know, on what the actual effects of that legislation were. So, yeah, psychology and history, really, really interesting things um there were, you know there's other things that have come out of it too like so for example the issue of transgression that we kind of skirted over with surgeon i tried to i tried to dig into it with him but he wasn't wasn't too keen understandably and i think i actually i was barking up the wrong tree slightly as well because i my um <laughs> my interpretation of him wearing that birds on birds on t-shirt was was way off basically um I, I i genuinely thought he was he was getting into that stuff with that but apparently um as he explained on that show, he definitely wasn't. But, but transgression is a super interesting topic, particularly in the context of um, what word, what term shall I use? Political correctness, I think. Let's not use the W term. But those forces in the scene now are so strong. And you know, any kind of attempt at a sort of transgression uh, angle on anything is just you know it's a, just anathema to the way people look at messaging now. I guess and the way they want messaging to come from their artists, what kind of messages they want their artists to be um, to be giving out. There's absolutely no room for doubt at all. And and you know that's fine. It's just the way there's just you know there there are ebbs and flows to all this stuff, and it's it's um it's just the way it is. And fair enough. I'm at a point in my life now where I can you know step back from it and just just observe without getting <laughs> getting my hands too dirty in it. But you know that that has been discussed. It has affected the the dancing a bit. I mean, there was a there was some discussion a few years back about the and I guess it was at the early start. Yeah, the the start of this kind of quote unquote political correct angle sort of coming into discussion of dance music where the blackest ever black label was really singled out in a way which i i saw sort of scratching my head about at the time and i'm still not completely sure how i really feel about it i don't there was a kind of racial angle sort of mapped onto that from afar by various people and i'm i i you know i don't know the people involved who, who were running that label so i'm i'm you know i'm speculating it completely but it always seemed to me to be quite a um well th- that was a quite a speculative um, angle to take on that label and having said that though you know the william bennett cut hand stuff and you know, v- various other artists around that scene were edge cases shall we say might be termed to be edge lords these days in the vernacular and that stuff goes back all the way back to the early 1980s. And one of the things we did talk about with Surgeon is, you know, what kind of, um, a crossover there might be with, with metal and imaging and metal in the, in the eighties and into the nineties. I mean, stuff like, I don't know, say cannibal corpse or, or whoever whose imagery and lyrics and, um, uh, you know, artwork is just, is way out there. And actually, I actually saw a guy on a flight with a cannibal, cannibal corpse t-shirt the other week in, uh, in the states, and it and I, it blew my mind what was on this Cannibal Corpse T-shirt. It really did, and it really I was just like, how how could you walk around with something like that on your on your shirt? But like, and then I had to think like, well, would the twenty year old me have thought that? I mean, I was heavy into metal when I was twenty. Actually, no, I wasn't at all. But maybe maybe fifteen year old me, not twenty year old me. And then I yeah, you you catch yourself and you think, well, hang on a sec, what 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 has led me to this like shock? so anyway that was super interesting and i mentioned at the end of that show that i wanted to um talk a bit more about transgression i still don't know how i want to do it i'm not i'm definitely not on I'm by no means an expert on the subject well, i read a guy's phd a guy called keith khan harris who you can find on twitter who's an interesting uh, author interesting writer he wrote a phd on transgression in um in metal and a lot of the stuff that he has to say about it, it's really interesting um but there is definitely a there was definitely a kind of like crossover in the kind of noise scene and then into techno, various parts of techno, in a way which is you know as I said it was it's been discussed mostly in just sort of almost taking it at face value, which is obviously a mis- misinterpretation of that sort of imagery. But I think now there is a you know desire of people just just to be very you know straight about you know if if something looks like something then it is that thing. I think that's what people generally speaking that's the attitude they take now and there were various different you know reasons for that i mean a lot of it is to do with um you know developments in uh intersectional theory and all that stuff which we will not discuss here but anyway um that was something very interesting that that, that came up and um i guess the other thing that the other thing that's come up is the um just general developments in the music industry i mean like we had Wilson on the very first episode who is a um, principally these days an A and R guy, I guess. But I mean, people know him probably more as a as a DJ and a, and a producer. But but he's very much a sort of um, he's just very clued in in the kind of industry, as it were. You know, he's worked as a as an artist manager as well, and you know, working for K7, which is like a pretty big independent. And you know, he had a lot of interesting things to say. For example, about the streaming model which is extremely poorly understood, to be honest. And I think the combination of that conversation and the one we had with Tim Exile, which was focused on potential solutions to, not solutions, maybe potential developments in how a better music ecosystem might work. And some of the stuff that Tim said was just super, super interesting. And he answered some of the questions that I asked in ways which I... Never considered to be potential answers to those questions, so I would really highly recommend going and listen to that uh, episode but the, the the main question I guess we've asked regarding developments in the music industry over the course of all of the episodes has been regards to the album format, which is something which is <laughs> uh, I guess it's dead in a sense, but every single person i've asked loves it and As I mentioned to Surgeon, that may be because I have been asking people of a certain age what they think of it. And clearly albums were just formative for almost everyone, consuming music for want of a better term. I hate that term, but it's actually quite an accurate term. It's been so important for people from, you know, probably the 1950s onwards, I guess. And even now, people really look at it in this kind of reverential terms so again what tim had to say about the album was was very interesting and you know the the general answer i've had to that question of you know what do you think of the album format in in 2022 has been uh, we still you know love albums and it's the uh, the ultimate artistic expression almost i think quite a lot of people said but then with the caveat that they kind of understand that it's it's on the way out so i I, you know it's, it's a very interesting question that i think and you know the extent to which makers of music wish to express themselves i think is mapped onto that format in a way so yeah i'm going to continue asking that question but i think probably in a slightly different way going forward cuz i'm um, i want to yeah i want to dig into that whole thing and it relates to the psychology issue to psychology of musicians so finally There's just one note I need to make, which is that I'm well aware that we have been very, very heavy on male guests thus far. We've only had one female guest in 14 episodes, which is is not great, I realise. It's mostly, I have to say, been because of scheduling issues. There have been uh, female guests on my list since day one who I haven't been able to get on, not through lack of trying. Is not a reflection on them. It's just the fact that, you know, when you're recording every week, you are to an extent at the mercy of other people's schedules. So those are just the ones that I've been able to fit in, those first 14. But there are plenty of female guests in the works. So don't worry about that. And, you know, I'm really committed to getting as wide a range of perspectives as possible on the show. Like I'm, I'm not a person who's really. Like I'm not in favor of diversity for diversity's sake, but I think it really adds a huge amount to have different perspectives. And, you know, those perspectives can be from as wider pool of people as possible and should be as wide a pool of people as possible. So, yeah, don't watch that. I'm on the case. Okay, so I've been nattering on for a little while now. Um, I'm just going to play a few highlights what I consider to be highlights of a few episodes starting with Tiga and um, if you haven't listened to all the episodes I recommend listening to all of them they, they are all really great in, in their own different ways I have to say I'm very happy with the way this has gone so far generally speaking as a show and I think each guest has been um, extremely engaging in their own way so um yeah but if you haven't listened to any of them then maybe we're going to cover some of what you've missed in the following bunch of clips. So um, yeah, I will be back next week, next Tuesday. We're here every Tuesday, regardless, with a new guest. And there will be a guest every week going forward as there has been for the last 14 weeks. So I'll check you then. Okay, thank you. TGUP, welcome to the show. Uh, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing okay. Like, when did you get into the whole? I mean, how how into the whole crypto thing are you? And if so, like, when when did you first dip your toe
0: in? Um, I started. It's pretty funny. I, well, funny. It's not funny. It's it's not a good joke. But
3: it. But, oh, is this a mil- <laughs> is this a million lost bitcoins story?
0: <laughs> no, no, I don't have any of those. I've 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 had a pretty good pretty good experience. No, it started for me actually. I was in Ibiza at my house in in Ibiza in 2017 in the summer, and a friend of mine came over and he was like one of these early ethereum people like but not 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 like right. not a not like a speculative guy more like a tech guy he was just really into the the blockchain end of it and the science of it and everything and he sat me down for just like an hour or so and just talked about it and and it was the first time It reminded me a lot of like the early rave days, you know, just when you, when you bump into someone who's like really evangelical, just really, really passionate about something and they explain it well. And it kind of held my hand and, and that got me into it. Previously to that, I had zero interest in Bitcoin. I thought it was trash. I, I wish I hadn't thought that, but I had no interest in the whole space, nothing. And the funny thing is that night, I remember I told myself, I was like, you know what? I was DJing that night with Pete Tong, uh, at oh Jesus, I can't remember. One of those outdoor parties, like an outdoor beach club kind of thing. Like a schweier or something. It was a smaller one. It was like, I don't remember what I should remember. I don't remember anything from the DJ years. Nothing. It's like, I don't remember. I barely, I remember your name. I remember some key moments. But, but uh, anyway, I went and I remember telling myself, you know what? Why don't you just put your feed tonight? into Ethereum, you know, just like, what the hell? You know, just like, so that was the beginning for me. It was that night in 2017. And- Well, that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty early, really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's early enough. I think a lot of adoption with these things, I, I really believe it comes down to, <clears throat> it comes down to when you have that conversation with somebody, all the other stuff, you know, all the stuff in the newspapers, all the, all the, sorry, not newspapers. I sounded a hundred years old. All the stuff online- <laughs> All the all the yeah. all the headline stuff usually just kind of creates FOMO. And and you know, most people, especially a lot of creative people, there's like a cycle where like, you know, the 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 feeling that you're late to something kind of turns to like bitterness and then you're kind of like against it, but really secretly you're just against it because you wish you were part of it, et cetera, et cetera. You see that a lot in the NFT space too, I think. But anyway, a lot of the time what what ends all that is just you know, someone kind of holding your hand, someone you trust and, and explaining a little bit more what's behind it, not so much the money end of it. And then that's usually the entry point. So yeah, for me, but crypto is like, you know, the whole thing, I don't want to oversimplify it, but my experience with crypto has essentially been the same as experience with gambling. It, it's very, 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 very similar uh, in terms of the role it plays in, in my life.
3: When you say gambling, do you do you include stock trading in that? Yeah, I
0: do. I do yeah, gambling I mean in its most overt form, that would be like you know playing poker or going to the casino, but it's really all the same thing' it, it's, it's all the, the the place it plays in your life and in your head, um, the, 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 the feelings it releases, the ideas of the illusions of control, the, the little the meaningless victories, the meaningless defeats the, the, the whole thing is just a giant distraction, which you know most people. Most people have some understanding of it. And, you know, if you, I don't know, it's just, it's something. I've never, I've never been a drinker. I don't do drugs. I've never really had problems with anything, but I always, since I was a little, little kid, I do have a little bit of a weakness for, you know, it started like playing cards and things like that. And crypto is, you know, it's very similar to that.
3: Okay. So you see it, you see it and that sounds That's really interesting.
0: You know, techno, which, which is probably my, one of my first loves, you know, techno has a tendency to get boring you know it kind of veers towards a weird conservative side i don't know why even though it always starts really future it it, it always it, it tends to kind of veer to, towards like a uniformity and for me in the late I mean, not sorry go
3: yeah i was just gonna say that i i think it um it attracts people who are very um ideological i think mm-hmm. in their yeah. approach to music so you get so it goes through cycles where um, it's it's great, and it's like seemingly like as you said, futuristic, and it you know it's the sound of the future, etc., et and all that stuff. But there are there is a definitely a, a kind of like peak and trough, you know, boom bust cycle yeah. element to it. Yeah, and I, I, I and it must be just something to do with like you know who it attracts.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, I think the reasons are. I think first of all, a lot of the music is made alone which I think as opposed to, you know, bands or, or more like partnerships, I think when you're doing stuff alone, you can get a little bit kind of up your own ass in a way. Like you can lose the plot a little, not, not everybody, but I also think too, it's, it's generally like functional music. So you start to think it's enough that it functions, which, which often it is. But, but I also think too, it just gets a bit serious sometimes. Like sometimes you kind of forget about the fun factor, you know? Anyway, the reason I bring all that up was it was just, that's, that was what was happening for me in the in the in the late 90s cuz the rave years were fucking incredible right it was like you know just it was hard happy hardcore and regular hardcore and breaks and records that were blowing your mind i mean if you listen to an old alternate record or you listen to you know early early drum and bass records like there's so much happening is so much excitement there's so many ideas it's like it's the sound of kids with no rules making crazy shit, you know? So that that was like all the early nineties. Then it got a little bit boring. So the reason part of why Electro and all that and my career, part of why those years were so exciting was it was like just a return to like having fun and and yeah, it it felt like having fun again. You know, techno, which which is probably my one of my first loves, you know, techno has a tendency to get boring, you know, it kind of veers towards a weird conservative side. I don't know why, even though it always starts really future. It, it, it always it, it tends to kind of veer to, towards like a uniformity, and for me in the late I mean, not, sorry go
3: yeah, I was just going to say that I, I think it um it attracts people who are very um, ideological. I think mm-hmm. in their yeah. approach to music, so you get so it goes through cycles where. Um, it's it's great, and it's like seemingly like as you said, futuristic, and it you know it's the sound of the future, et cetera, et cetera and all that stuff. But there are there is a definitely a, a kind of like peak and trough, you know, boom bust cycle yeah. element to it. Yeah, and I, I and it must be just something to do with like you know who it attracts.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, I think the reasons are. I think first of all, a lot of the music is made alone which I think as opposed to, you know, bands or, or more like partnerships, I think when you're doing stuff alone, you can get a little bit kind of up your own ass in a way. Like you can lose the plot a little, not, not everybody, but I also think too, it's, it's generally like functional music. So you start to think it's enough that it functions, which, which often it is. But, but I also think too, it just gets a bit serious sometimes. Like sometimes you kind of forget about the fun factor, you know? Anyway, the reason I bring all that up was it was just, that's, that was what was happening for me in the in the, in the the late 90s because the rave years were fucking incredible, right? It was like, you know, just... It was hard, happy hardcore and regular hardcore and breaks and records that were blowing your mind. I mean, if you listen to an old alternate record or you listen to, you know, early, early drum and bass records, like there's so much happening, there's so much excitement, there's so many ideas. It's like, it's the sound of kids with no rules making crazy shit, you know? So that that was like all the early nineties. Then it got a little bit boring. So the reason part of why Electro and all that and my career, part of why those years were so exciting was it was like just a return to like having fun and and yeah, it, it felt like having fun again. <laughs>
3: Cynthia, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm doing great.
3: The Berlin scene particularly, I mean, this is true of all underground scenes, yeah. but Berlin scene particularly can be very um well, it can be quite bitchy, I find. Yeah. It can yeah. be quite it's like snobbish yeah. in in a way which is um can be, yeah, it can be quite difficult to kind of navigate your way through it. If you if people um get a kind of perception of you as doing something, it can be quite difficult to break those perception.
2: Yeah, absolutely and back then it was even a bit harder. I think um in the UK it was much different much more different because you even had dance music in the charts and it's um it was very nice to be successful. I think in Germany and I'm not sure if it's, like, a German thing. We are more like, oh, if you're successful, you don't show it because that makes you uncool. And so it was also in the scene, yeah. you know. So you were, like, playing good gigs. But then if you were becoming too big, then people were calling you out as commercial or uh, not credible enough or not cool anymore or not underground enough. And, yeah, so, yeah. And for me, I came from this big label, you know, played a lot of gigs, like, also internationally nationally, and stuff. I mean, I wasn't very big, but... Um, People from that label knew me, and also people from Berlin knew me. And it took me a while to get yeah back into the underground scene. But uh, once I was in, you know, I um, I was like always respected, you know. And
3: so, how did you go about doing that? I mean, was that a case a case of, of, of just like what you play as a DJ, or did you have some key releases which which made a kind of breakthrough in that respect? Like, how did how did it pan out?
2: No. So when I stopped with that with that label, I didn't release any music until. 2008 then I had a few releases and then I had my daughter and I really restarted in 2011 when when I had my own label so it was just from like DJing and also about you know meeting people going out socializing with people and um, I think I got most gigs through my personality as well you know, so the people heard that I play good music, but then also when they met me, they're like, "Oh, you're super nice." I was like, "Yeah, of course." I mean, and then, "Oh, you you wanna pl- you wanna play at my party?" It's like, yeah, sure, cool. And then I played at the party, and then uh, I think it was it was more like this, um, how do you call it in English? Word to mouth. Is that a thing?
3: Um i'm not i'm not sure what okay happened.
2: maybe that's just a german expression and i'm trying to translate it no it was more like uh, so people heard me playing and then
3: a oh, word of mouth
2: yeah yeah word word of of mu- m-
3: yeah. T- yeah yeah and that- sorry yeah that's yeah i should have clocked that yeah
2: sorry yeah, yeah. i'm sometimes also mumbling. no 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 yeah. no 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 yeah so that's how i got my- it's,
3: it's establishing a reputation right
2: yeah so it's exactly like going, that's what i wanted to say
3: and, and <laughs> kind of like i mean networking is the kind of slightly un- uncomfortable way of saying it but like that's that's the reality of what it is you you go, you go out and you meet people and you put yourself out there. Yeah. And that's how you establish yourself in a scene. You know, I speak to so many like young up-and-coming artists now and like just trying to impress that just basic thing in them can be so important, just just realizing you've just got to go out there and, and sort of present yourself, you know? And yeah. that's really a lot of the times what makes the difference.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I was also recording a lot of mixes, put them up on SoundCloud and people liked it. And I think those two combinations, um, that helped me g- get some gigs in Berlin
3: okay you mentioned at the top or near the top anyway that you know when you were first starting out in frankfurt that you were the only the only woman the only girl at the time and how has that changed like how has the experience of of being in the scene as a woman changed in the in that sort of almost 20 year period like what how has it developed and and what what have been the yeah what have been the big changes would you say
2: Yes. Yeah, it definitely um, developed a lot. I mean, now you have a lot of women making music, and um, um, yeah, and it changed a lot. I mean, back then it was it was still really rare because you only had. Uh, I mean, there were women that were much more famous than me like Ellen Alien she's still in the game Monika Kruse uh, there was of course Marusha. she was probably one of the famous and first ones and it was such a special kind of thing so um, I mean for me it was never special because we were all musicians you know and I was always very well respected from the guys and we never made a big thing out of it but then of course it happened to me a couple of times that I was playing at the club and then some guys came up to me afterwards like, yeah, that was not too bad for a woman. And I was like
3: <laughs> fuck off. You know, oh, <laughs> you yeah, know I can imagine. I yeah.
2: Can imagine. Just these classic things. But um I mean I wasn't too angry because it's just uh I think it was just a, a natural evolution and um just because it was like something unexpected or something new for someone I, I always felt yeah i cannot be angry with this person because uh because he's thinking like oh my god she's a woman it's like oh i never seen something like this and because um i know from that when he's when this guy saw me playing maybe it changed a bit his mind that also women can make good music and um yeah and when i was then back in berlin um like loads more Women, I, I knew more, a lot more women making music, um, mostly in the underground scene and stuff. And then, I think, um, I think we were always doing our thing, especially also like Cassie and and all these great, great um, female DJs or whatever you want to call them. And, but I think it really, really started with maybe Nina Kravitz as well, because I think she was the first one. I don't want to say she also used her look but I mean she's very good looking of course and I think that also I think it's just a natural thing you know that when you when you make good music and you're also good looking it attracts more uh, fans or people than when you're just a normal-looking person.
3: I mean, yeah, people are cynical about that, but to be honest, the way I look at it is like it's it also works for men. You know, it's like if you're if you're good-looking
2: yeah. man, then it then it helps. You know, yeah, it's like course. this
3: is kind of essentially we're in show business, yeah. and show business is a combination of um, like personal attraction and also whatever kind of uh, kind of art. That you're kind of adding to that, so so it's like yeah it it works it's, for everybody. yeah it's I <laughs> it mean it works
2: yeah you are right, of course it works for both sides, um, but I think this was also the start of like making more uh more girls confident, and also I think on the other side, people realize, okay, um it can also be like a like a a good business, you know, so and I think now more girls getting confident and um uh, i think after this this thing came out that only 10% women uh play on festivals and stuff it was a big thing in the in the scene you know and then i think a lot of more women came forward and um, were like look i also make good music and i'm not sure what it is i think maybe women are sometimes a bit more shy than the guys or um i mean also i see it from a different side because i studied software development and i was also the only woman in the whole Class, you know,
3: right? Yeah, that's got to be a masculine environment as well.
2: Yeah, it's it's the same thing. And I, and some people ask me, "Oh, why did you study that?" And I was like, "Yeah, I was just interested in it, you know." And maybe back then, not so many women were interested in like making music themselves, or maybe they were also a bit scared of the technical aspect and stuff. But um, yeah, now I think also with a lot more female artists being confident and coming up and also play the big festivals and stuff like that also a lot of like um, other girls see it as a role model and um, yeah so I think it's it's a good uh, in evolution and um, yeah I, I think it's good but then also with everything you know it has is its uh, downsides as well you know <laughs>
3: D welcome to the show. How are you doing?
4: I'm doing well,
3: thank you. How are you? It's been a while. Yeah, I want to go go back to that really early John Base Jungle scene that, when it came out of Hardcore because um, you, as you said, you were in it from from the very start, right? Ninety two ish. That's. Uh, I had my first release in ninety two. Yeah, I mean, you. Were, I mean, but presumably you were going out to raves and stuff. Before yeah. That or yeah. yeah. Well, so yeah, just yeah. give us a kind of snapshot of like of what it was like. In this, in you were in London, I guess, yeah. Uh, Well, I was kind of in between
4: Malvern and London. I used to, I grew up. I kind of like my teenage years were in a little town, little um, Cotswold town called Malvern in Worcestershire. Um, So that's that was sort of where my beginnings. And I moved down to London. um, I can't even remember. It was around ninety ninety one. And my brother Steve Steve Spacek. He lived in London. We lived in Lewisham. Um, I basically sort of ended up living living with him, and he used to just, you know, he used to take me out raving, take me to, like, Roast, Storia, you know, Orange. Um, and then we used to know there was a local crew, um, Desert Storm. We used to do things down at sort of Lee Valley. So that was really...
3: Yeah, right. That was, right?
4: Yeah, so that was more the jungle was definitely coming through. I think it was just... it was because i'm trying to remember if i actually sort of went out i'd listened to listen to hardcore as such but never really went out to it it was more kind of like because london was definitely sort of like the whole jungle
3: thing and there was that sort of dark side jungle that came around as well um it was pretty common to have like hardcore in one, one room and jungle in the other i seem to cool yeah yeah
4: places. yeah so i was always i was just a, in the jungle room so I knew it was there. I think that my only real exposure to hardcore as such was more, um, like when I used, to, um, like what was it called, Castle Morton. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, that was just literally just around the corner from where I used to live. So that you know, and there was just you know, Spiral Tribe, DIY, and all that, all that lot were there. So that was that was more where I experienced hardcore, and it's the tapes. But I think. I was sort of coming back and forth between there and London and I was just sort of like, nah, I'm all about jungle, that's me. So yeah, it was just, it was just, I just felt like it was just everywhere, literally everywhere. It's almost like, it was probably more pirate stations than there were legal stations at the time. It felt like on on the radio, do you know what I mean? Um, What were the
3: parties like?
4: They were, I'm trying to think because I was pretty, you know, I was probably a kid. Yeah, well, yeah, but I was also out of my mind. Do you know what
3: I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, I guess I mean everyone was right. That was the yeah. nature well, of the game.
4: Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to think what, I, what I, 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 used to really enjoy going to Astoria. That was I used to. For some reason, I just loved that spot. Um, you mean
3: Astoria on Tornaco Road? Is that right? Yeah.
4: In yeah, it was no. It was on yeah, Charing Cross. Yeah, it was on Charing Cross Road. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and they had, they had, didn't just have raves there. It was like they had loads of concerts and that kind of stuff, right?
4: Yeah, that just used to, there was, it was, I used to always just love going to that one for some reason. I just got, I just got memories of like Five O and who was that other guy? MC Chalky White and <laughs> things like that. And then, actually, I remember actually a really good rave I went to in, I don't know if he's still there. It's not, it's not anymore. I think it's the, you know, Bristol Polytechnic when the Polytechnic was there. Um right that was I think that's where I did my first peel actually was right was, was there um year was that that would have been around the same time that would have been early sort of 91, ninety one ninety nineteen nineteen ninety one I think that would have been but yeah, it was just like just going, going out it was just getting getting you know getting the bus up there getting the night bus back it was it just literally jungle was a soundtrack for the whole journey. Which, I mean, whether it was people playing it out of their just these you know, their headphones, you could hear, and coming out of cars and then it's just it was just yeah, just so encompassing. It was really weird in some ways how much how much how enveloping it was as as a scene. Um, it just felt it, it was it was that it, you definitely felt like you were part of something. Um, and yeah. it had its within it. Obviously, you, you had its factions. Whether it was like if you were into Rush FM or Cool FM or what was the one Shocking. You know, I was a I was a Rush FM guy. Um, so that was it. Was just that on constantly in the background, no matter what. <laughs> I mean, who were the who were the DJs on there? For me, I was all about Red Ant. I think that was okay. his name. Yeah, Red, Red Ant was my was my boy. I I can't can't remember any other any
3: other names I mean you've done well to remember one to be fair <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean it, it's it, it changed quite a lot actually in a fairly short period of time because yeah. <laughs> um but I, I think the whole sound of John Bass um, changed as well though in, in that period so it was probably a reflection of that as well as you know just you know, just the, the different um, methods of working and, and all that but so I mean <laughs> by the sound of it well I'm, I'm pretty sure you were a little bit you felt a little bit alienated by the way the music developed generally is that fair to say?
4: Yeah yeah I was just I just wasn't in it do you know what I mean I think mm, yeah. I think it was um, a few a, f- a few different factors I think it's like it was the advent of of AIM, AOL, Instant Messenger, you know, people sending, there was this, now there was this ability to send music to people very quickly. And also so, and also the advent of CDJs. So it was kind of like the whole, the technology was sort of like changing as we were, you know, as we were developing as a group. So it, it you know, it got to the stage where, I'd be, you know, because I lived in South London and, you know, Dan's up in Hampstead in North London. Jason was also in South London. You know, we'd, it was it'd start a tune. Okay, cool. Sounds great. Go home, come back. By the time you come back, a lot of it's changed and Andy C had it already. Do you know what I mean, <laughs> right. it's, it was like, Andy is like, a bit more like, but what about, uh, yeah, but yeah, Andy says he really likes it. Yeah, of course, Andy says he really bloody likes it because it's a PC tune and he's got it before anyone else. And it's, you know what I mean? And now you've gi- you've given it to him on Thursday night. He's now down at Music House getting it cut, no doubt. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like that was taking over and it just became really, it, it, because it, it, the instantaneousness of it, all. it became really difficult to work in that situation. Um, and I just found myself sort of in the studio, looking over Dan's shoulder and just being like, oh, I can't be arsed with this. Do you know what right. I mean?
3: Um, uh, but, were you Presumably you've been playing a lot of shows as well.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was really bad, which may be, well, actually I'm thinking about it from a psychological point of view, that may have something to do with why would I have a really bad time playing my own music. <laughs> just because. <laughs> I didn't really used to play the BC stuff. Jason did. Do you know what I mean? Right. I'd play the stuff in between. That was when we when we do because we'd go out in pairs in the back to backs. Yeah, I'd be playing other stuff, other people's stuff, rather than ours. Uh-huh. Um, right. Yeah, it, I mean
3: that was another thing that stuck with me from that uh, Red Bull interview. You were saying that DJing kind of turned into a sort of competition to get the most rewinds, and now oh, God, yeah, <laughs> you won't be that. I'd have to say that. Completely resonated with my experience and as a dubstep DJ, and really what made me want to stop doing it and want to you know play house and techno and all that stuff was just the the kind of like arms you know um rewind arms race you know it was yeah just, oh
4: yeah oh, was bullshit I mean I I hated it and it's it was and it was but it was anno- it was annoyingly it was like you you knew that everyone in on the night was going to play the same tunes that were going to get rewound. So it's it was yeah, it just became really boring. Yeah, I I think I I struggled though because towards the end because obviously I was earning really good money, but I was ultimately really unhappy at the same time. <laughs> um just not en- not enjoying it and it was it was it was a difficult transition towards the end of BC as well. Um but yeah, just that whole dub dub plate wars and it's just kind of like this this is really this is, yeah it's really boring this whole need to kind of because it was because it was also it was really getting to um magnifying this whole thing of like oh that tune's that tune's um big what have they done in that tune that's made it big <laughs> so then do you know what I mean so then it became a big be, then it became a thing of like because we were the big thing suddenly at certain points as well we sounded like really bad versions of ourselves do you know what I mean because other other people were doing what we were were, were doing at the time do you know? and so it's so, like and, and that still goes on now I think within within DMB and maybe just in music in general there's kind of like is it sort of self-referential kind of Need to kind of like oh, what's big? Let me do a version of that.
3: Recondite, welcome to the show. Is your is your show largely improvised?
1: Ah, uh, yes. In terms of when you when you mean improvised, in terms of like uh, a, a track order or a, a, yeah, a yeah. I mean, like dramaturgic got, I mean- approach in terms of like. Will I play harder tonight? Will I play slower? Will I play my more melodic melodic stuff? Will I play more my techno stuff? In terms of that, it's very improvised. Yes.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, there's obviously with 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 DJing, you, you when you play a lot of shows, you you know you, you you have mixes that you go back to and whatever. And I'm, I'm I imagine it's it's similar to that. So you figure out yeah, things of that course. work. And of course. And how I mean, how has that setup changed over time? Has it been pretty consistent or? Have there been? Uh, it
1: has been. It has been very consistent. I have been experimenting with hardware in my early, early stages of my career, but I realized it just took away my
3: attention, off,
1: right, yeah, off, off of the things that I thought were relevant. You know, which again is completely subjective.
3: I mean, do but, you do you um, do you rehearse between between shows? Much, no. right? No. Yeah, okay. That's interesting no. as well. Yeah, um, did, uh, presumably you did when you were first starting more than you do now. Is that fair, or, or is that true? Um, did you Did you ever or did you just did you just walk and just like less traditional?
1: <laughs> I would. Okay. Yeah, I would say less traditional rehearsing than. Right. working I mean, that on kind, the of indiv- ja- kind of
3: jamming, I go around on stuff. I guess is what I mean.
1: Yeah, less res- less that less of that than working on the individual parts that I use. Right. Yeah. So I more like when I spend work on my set, I, I spend work on the stuff that I use, the tracks that I use, the stuff that I put on those tracks, um, rather than practicing the mixing and practicing the, the way how I uh, uh, bring in that snare or something, you know. Um, yeah, but I have to also <laughs> say that I really got back into basketball a lot. Everyone who listens to my podcast knows that as well, because
3: I remember just, you saying this. Yeah. So you basically, so do you have an NBA team that, that you follow? Although American sports aren't really like that so much, are they? You can, which, there is a Which bit is the more thing that a, I
1: really like about it,
3: to be honest. Right.
1: Because it changes so much. I think you rather like certain players than teams also. Um, so yep. you follow more like individual players. And sometimes also teams, when you have like an... A little like uh, history with him or something, um, yeah. But uh, it's I I don't. There are also like some factors that I just didn't appreciate, like for FC Bayern Munich. Like of, obviously they have been super successful in terms of like winning Champions League and um, German championships and stuff. But also, I, I mean, you were,
3: you were, you you were pretty into it, man. I remember you absolutely hating Dortmund. Like, <laughs> <so that> could, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. I
1: mean, we, we, we could go in deep into like football psychology now.
3: Um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's probably not go too deep into that. But like, yeah, w- what all I
1: was trying to say is that I like Jurgen Klopp a lot more now than I used to like him when he was still at Dortmund. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. That, <laughs> because I, I just couldn't handle this. I mean, of course, they had talented players and stuff, you know, but it was all the
3: motivation that he did. You know, he he. When you when you, I remember you. I remember you sort of comparing it to like a kind of fanatical cult. I, that's what I remember about Man, your <laughs> criticism of Dortmund at, at that time. That's so funny. Like, yeah, but that's
1: how I felt. You know, like it was like this religion. He was like the priest, and they were following him.
3: And I'm I always. Mean, it's, it's pretty similar uh, at Liverpool now. To be honest, I think that's just basically how he how he does it. And then in Venice, him, he's pretty successful.
1: Yeah, that's true, but. Um you know what I like when I when it comes to sports um and, and also to like irrational sympathy for a sports team or a a, a sports person um is I have the the tendency to like the people that are you know more quiet but they are just convincing with their actions and things they do on the pitch or on the court or however wherever you they perform and I don't like the outgoing type so much i don't like the crying and and shouting and yelling and celebrating too much type of athlete you know like
3: is that is that something that you also feel about musicians
1: um that's something that i feel about everything in life that's why my artist name is recondite you know
3: (laughs) yeah right because it's something
1: i like things that are held back a little bit that are a little bit more quiet a little bit more obscure a little bit more in the in the hidden area of things, a little bit um tamed down but still maybe strong, maybe mysterious. You you don't know, you never know. But they are a little bit more let's say deep than the outgoing type. Of course the outgoing type can be deep, but in my opinion it's well it's well it's just a subjective thing. You know, like it's just what I feel. It's no objective
3: Oh yeah, no, totally. I mean, I'm just—it's it's interesting because yeah. um, it's. I guess, I guess it's all reflected in your music. And I was, I was just thinking about, you know, the the sort of juxtaposition between your records and the way you play live. Because what's the other thing about your your career that's really intrigued me is is the way that you've been able to um, release this super deep music, most of which is fairly sort of introspective and. And kind of eyes down, as it were. But but when you when you play live, it's like you know, people really really respond in a dance floor level to your sets. And that and that's, that was definitely true ever since that first night at Berkan. And I remember, you know, I've seen you play countless times. Um, there, there was one that I remember in particular. Um, there's a club in Munich, and I'm blanking on the name now. But we did a hot
1: flush. It was Bob Beeman.
3: Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah. I remember your set at Bob Beeman. Mm-hmm. And it was um like the the opening. I just remember standing there for the first twenty minutes or so, and it was super minimal what you were playing. It was really, mm-hmm. really like you know stripped back. But but you know, but in that, it was actually it was actually quite similar to my first ever experience a panorama going to panorama as a you know as, as, a, as a punter and walking in and mm-hmm. and it was 2007 so the, the the minimal thing was 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 still happening um and just the reaction that people had to was well, some little some little hi-hat coming in and it was exactly the mm-hmm. same thing a couple of years later well, well three or four years later in uh, your set uh, during your set at Bob beeman i just remember this this smallest thing coming in and the place just erupted man i was like wow <laughs> Holy yeah. shit, like fair, yeah, yeah, fair, yeah. fair enough, man. If you're, if you're, it's, it's a very subtle skill to be able to pull that off, man. It really, it really is. I don't know. I, I mean, it's, it's certainly beyond my capabilities. But, but how do you, I mean, do you think that's also a kind of reflection of, of, um, you know, wanting to be, I guess, reserved is, is, is the way I would put it in, in terms of your personality, but, but expressing that in, in a way which still kind of connects with people in a, in a profound way.
1: Probably, it's it's maybe also part of my upbringing, part of my personality, part of the area where I grew up, where that type of mindset is also quite quite around. I would say, um, I don't know, like it's it's it, it's interesting. It's it's it really like um, spans throughout my whole life that things that pop into my eye are basically things that are being forced to be popping into my eye, those are the things that I turn away from the earliest, you know, Um,
3: because the, ov- the obvious I, things you mean.
1: Yeah. But also the things that are forced into my eye. Right. You know, for example, I don't like things, you know, like that's also, you know, we, we could like do that transition into social media with this right now, you know, like what, what is the most popular on, on social media? It's the stuff that pops, you know, and it's the stuff that is, everything is designed in order to reach people in order to gain awareness or to uh to 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 kind of you know um,
3: engagement right that's that's the uh and
1: visibility you know like i that's why sometimes i struggle with social media to be honest because visibility is not what i is not my main goal you know
3: Machine Drum, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
5: I'm great. How are you, Paul? Or Scuba, Paul. You can call me Travis. (laughs) All right. Okay. Let's just do Travis and Paul.
3: Um, Like, was there like a hard inflection point, like at any time? Like, because we talked about getting your first kind of stuff signed and like having that kind of validation and getting to the point at which you're, you know, confident in your own work and like, was there a point? Um, because I know from you know, from my stuff, it was it happened quite late actually that I finally sort of like made peace with myself, sort of creatively. Like, was there was there a point at which that began to happen for you?
5: Yeah, I I really do think you know after doing this sort of weird abstract like art noise experimental music kind of phase in Orlando and shifting into this more serious like I could see where. I could actually see a future in what I was doing uh working with vocalists um that that was a, a, a really big changing point turning point for me where I think you know it was everything from doing the sessions and and being you know like engineering the sessions and and having the vocalists go in my closet and and record the vocals and like uh just learning how to like what to do and what not to do um especially with my limited setup that I had uh, and, and a lot of these artists were also just first starting off and were very young. And so we're all kind of learning together, which was really exciting. And so was, I think between that and actually performing on stage with some of these artists, particularly Theophilus London, um, you know, I I would, generally I was his, ba- uh, his, uh, his DJ uh, at shows and I would get on the mic and you know, do ad libs and, and kind of be his hype man in a way, which was like a really interesting phase (laughs) of my career. (laughs) Um, uh, But, you know, I, I was also like for the first time in my, in my life, like focusing on fashion and like started like, you know, like being a bit more conscious of what I was wearing and, and especially being in, in that scene, you know, like where fashion is, is kind of um. I mean, it's very important. I mean, in New York in general, you know, that I think had an influence on me. Started uh, being more aware of what clothes and kind of shoes I was wearing and everything, but especially you know being on stage with someone as flashy as Theophilus London, uh, uh, made me start uh, paying more attention to to that kind of world. Yeah, you've got to you've got to do your part, right? You can't just be. <laughs>
3: guys out there invisible
5: yeah exactly uh but yeah i think you know just um having that excitement of being on stage and like hearing the songs that i had produced with this rapper and seeing you know uh um an actual fan base start to form where we would see the same people at each show and and the crowds were getting bigger and bigger um yeah it was super exciting and validating for me
3: i mean that's kind of an interesting contrast between um, having confidence in yourself, like technically in the studio and making music that you think is good and like, you know, that that whole side of it. And then like the performance side and the kind of public face, which is totally different, but, um, you know, and, and can be challenging in a very different way, you know, psychologically, I guess. So h- how was that? I mean, how was that kind of development of you becoming more of a kind of, you know, your kind of personal profile growing and and, and all that side of it?
5: I think... By this point I'd I'd played loads of shows, some big, some small, you know, doing more experimental instrumental glitch hop IDM kind of stuff. Um so I I'd, I'd definitely gotten to a point where, you know, play, playing in front of people wasn't that big of a deal anymore, but I think it was more so just knowing that my music was accepted outside of that sort of niche underground electronic world seeing that there was a more I I was basically you know being accepted into the mainstream Mm. uh, somewhat um, which for me I felt was a bigger challenge than making crazy left field electronic music you know Um, because I could do that all day but making something that was not only accepted in the mainstream but also something that I found exciting to listen to and and you know my fans fan base that I had had up to that point was also into it. Um that was the challenge for me. Uh and you know to, to see it actually working out um was was super exciting. And of course there was, you know, some people that basically anytime I would have any vocalist on a track they basically thumbs downed it but you know <laughs> that's that 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 goes with the territory i guess
3: you know what kind of shows were you going to in those first few years in in new york like what what was the kind of stuff that was kind of pulling you in
5: yeah i mean it was everything from trouble and bass i think trouble base was like the earliest sort of parties that i would go to for sure and cut was another one i think it was loosely related to trouble and base uh cut cut nyc uh they they're bringing in stuff like um like like ed banger sirkin more sort of like uh what would you call it like blog house kind of stuff uh electro electro clash stuff like that so if anything, it was it wasn't even they're they're almost like more like concerts in a way where uh, the DJs were on stage. It was more of like a headlining event as opposed to a club night. But you know, when I discovered Trouble and Bass and Dub War, I became more interested in the idea of a club night versus like a headlining show with you know an actor on stage or whatever that we're all looking at, mm. and and more into like a vibe created in a room where. You know, it's it's less about who's on stage and more about the sound system and and the music coming out. I mean, that's the
3: DJ culture element of it, I guess. Which is a it is a very different mindset going to a show, which is, um, you know, which doesn't have that direct, I guess, performance element around it. I mean, obviously DJing is, is a performance, but it's 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 totally different to um, a totally different mindset. And actually, particularly in in New York, has a, a real history of. Like DJ culture, which is you know where where the DJ box is actually not visible to the crowd, you know. So it's yeah, it's a totally different thing. So what was your what was the development of your music then around that? Like you were you said you wanted to you know get into producing vocalists and you wanna you wanted to um you know start expressing yourself in in a in a production way as well as a kind of instrumentalist way. So like, tell me how that like that developed over those those years.
5: Yeah, so. When I first moved to New York, um, a big reason I moved uh, and i was I figured okay, now is the time is uh, I started making battle records with uh, dJ i emerge um, and he was really interested but through the whole process of me making these battle records, he was really interested in starting a label uh, where it would be primarily focused on um, working with vocalists but also just. You know, allowing me to express this um, sort of producer role that I had started to to create, um, and so I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I I do know that he was definitely more connected with the you know hip hop scene and uh, like the rap scene, R and B scene in New York uh, than I was. So he was definitely my entry point uh, at that time. And he introduced me to uh, Theophilus London, who through Theophilus, I ended up meeting Jesse Boykins III, uh, Mellow X, Mickey Fax, uh, who all, all of those ended up featuring on my album 1212, which I created between the years of 2006 and 2009, I believe. Yeah, so that, that was really the first time I had um, properly worked with vocalists and and even helped on the songwriting side of things and started to really cut my teeth in, in that world. Yeah, so that was just a few clips I pulled from
3: four pretty much random episodes. Um which give a little bit of a flavor, I guess, of what we've been doing. I didn't, um, go in there too hard to try and pick up the absolute most pertinent examples. But, um, yeah. Okay. So just a final appeal for ratings and reviews, wherever you're listening to this, it really does help. We are building an audience. We've grown every week so far. And, uh, Hopefully, we will continue to do that going forward. Yeah, the figures have been encouraging, certainly, so far. So, thank you very much for your support, um, however you've given it. Uh, You can also uh, join us in the Discord. Uh, There's a link in the show notes to join us there. Let me know what you're thinking. Give me your suggestions for future episodes, any topics or any guests you're um, interested in hearing from. As I mentioned uh, in the first part of this podcast, I do have quite a few lined up already. So, um, but yeah, always interested to hear from you. Uh, also do that on Twitter via Scuba Official. Instagram is also Scuba Official. And there is also a Spotify playlist containing much of the music that we discuss on the show. So yeah, thanks for listening. This has been the intermission episode of not a diving podcast i'll be back here same time same place next week with a guest so until then keep safe and i'll check you then